0: Hi, I'm Mitch.
1: And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks.
0: Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. After a bit of a break, we're back, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Mel.
1: Thank you, Mitch.
0: So, summer's almost over. The fall is beginning. It's time to gear up for school again. Where are you at?
1: Um, I'm probably not gearing up for, for school or fall as much as I am trying to plan as many things as possible before the summer ends, but, but I think that's the same thing.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you. I'm trying to take advantage of my weekends as much as possible and trying to get out of the city um which is ironic because i just moved into the city. You did. But uh yeah, that's that's how things are.
1: And you're all moved in now, right, Mitch?
0: I am moved in now. I'm 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 living the the young adult life in the big city.
1: Very exciting. Nice. Well, I have to say I'm pretty excited about this week's podcast. Mitch, why don't you fill in our listeners on what we'll be talking about this week?
0: Absolutely. So, this week, broadly speaking, we're talking about climate change. Now, that's uh, a topic that's quite substantive. Uh, and to be honest, we could dedicate an entire podcast, an entire series of episodes to climate change. Um, and the, usually the greatest focus is placed on the science behind climate change or the economics for mitigation and adaptation strategies. But today's episode, we're focusing more on the human side, uh, specifically gender dimensions. So if we talk about climate change generally, the the challenges posed by climate change have been acknowledged for quite some time. In fact, if we go back almost 25 years to the Earth Summit in Rio, funny enough, back in 1992, uh, that led to the negotiation of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, otherwise known as the UNFCCC, and remember that, you'll hear that a couple of times today. Uh, And even more so in the past decade we've seen an increased attention uh, particularly amongst the general population. I think many of us when we think about climate change, at least for, for me when I think about climate change, I think my first exposure or, or conscious memories of climate change was watching the documentary *An Inconvenient Truth uh, and I think that really brought the issues of climate change I think more to the forefront of popular culture uh, and even from the government perspective, I think we're increasingly seeing a recognition from nations um, that climate change is is becoming more and more a key priority uh, in their programming. Uh, The the, the consequences of climate change are being felt around the world, and I think for that reason it's one of, if not the only truly global crisis that really knows no boundaries. Uh, And that's particularly concerning because the impacts of climate change are being most strongly felt in developing countries who comparatively have less capacity to effectively respond. And again, this episode we're diving a little bit more into the human side, so we're specifically focusing on the gender dimensions of climate change. As a group, women are disproportionately affected by climate change. In fact, according to UN Women, and this is quoted directly from a fact sheet they published in 2009, when coupled with unequal access to resources and to decision-making processes, Limited mobility places women in rural areas in a position where they are disproportionately affected by climate change. And so the aim of this episode is to explore the reasons why women as a group are disproportionately affected by climate change and the implications this has on policy.
1: Thanks, Mitch. Well, yeah, as as you just said, there is this disproportionate impact on women. So, let's unpack this a little bit, just for a better understanding of why it's important to look at climate change and gender together. According to the World Health Organization, there's good evidence that men and women experience different negative health consequences following extreme events, like floods or heat waves or droughts. So in countries where women have very low socio-economic and political status, Natural disasters, on average, end up killing more women than men and also end up killing women at younger ages than men. So this is kind of a short-term look into this disproportionate impact. Now for a longer-term view of the impact, let's look at agriculture, one of the sectors most affected by climate change. So women make up between 43 to 60% of the agricultural labor force in developing countries. They're also being given more and more responsibilities for farming and food production, but are left with land that's increasingly prone to drought and flooding. In addition to all of these increasing farming and food production responsibilities, they're also generally expected to raise the children, care for the sick, cook, clean, collect firewood, collect water. And so climate change increases this burden on women at all these levels as food producers, as providers, and as caregivers. This means that women have less time for education, for income generation, for community participation, and for contributing to decision-making at different levels. So looking at this, without identifying and addressing men and women's specific needs and priorities, Climate change policies will perpetuate and strengthen existing patterns of gender inequality, and it also hinder the progression of climate change efforts.
0: So that's a little bit of a background into the, the current situation. I think, naturally, the next question that anyone would ask is, what's being done about it? Uh, and so if we look at, at the current state of, of policies and practices by international organizations and governments, um, There have been efforts to include gender provisions in climate change programming and policies. Um, For instance, if we look even just in the fall at the 21st Conference of Parties to the UNFCCC, which we commonly refer to as COP21, uh, the resulting Paris Climate Change Agreement includes references to gender balance, gender responsive action, and gender equality. And that relates not only to activities on the ground, but also the institutional environments and decision-making bodies themselves. On the flip side of that, critics argue that the present efforts don't go far enough and maybe little more than rhetoric. Uh, For instance, if we we look at the submitted Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs, which are essentially the the outlines of a country's plan of action to address climate change, according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature, less than 40 percent of these INDCs explicitly mention gender or women in the context of their national priorities. So we see a bit of a disconnect between what is, uh, in my mind, what is being agreed to, or what has been agreed to in the Paris Agreement and what countries have proposed as their plans of action to achieve the goals established uh, in the Paris Agreement. Uh, And at the present time, there continue to be critical barriers to involving women in climate change discussions and decisions, whether it's from a lack of political will from nations, uh, socio-cultural norms, Uh, Namely, a reluctance to change or an inability to change the systems of gender roles present in individual nations. Uh, The lack of sex-disaggregated data uh, across multiple relevant sectors is also a critical issue. For example, livelihoods, disaster preparedness, protection of environment, health and well-being. These are all areas where we're not seeing enough of a breakdown um, to make some of these informed evidence-based policy decisions. And this also leads to an underestimation of women's roles and contributions, which in turn results in gender-blind climate change policies and programming. Uh, And ultimately, the lack of women's participation in climate change policymaking is problematic because it excludes critical change agents at a time when, frankly, we need everyone to come together.
1: So that being said, today we will be discussing some of these issues with our guest, Kelly Caswell. Kelly Caswell is the Gender Specialist for the Canadian Cooperative Association, also known as the CCA, where she provides organizational direction and support to CCA staff and overseas partners on gender issues within international development projects located throughout Africa, Asia, and South America. Kelly also supports CCA's environment portfolio regarding climate change adaptation and resiliency programming. Welcome to Polystocks, Clay. Great to have you here despite thanks. the rainfall. Yeah,
2: thanks for having <laughs> me too.
1: Yeah. So just to jump right in here, let's get started. Can you talk us through some of the policy gaps that currently exist regarding gender and climate change?
2: Yes. Well, um, Mitch t- touched on a few of the the more important ones, considering uh, the state where we're in right now, a post in a post COP21 environment. Um, yeah, the fact that only forty percent of the hundred and sixty parties have actually committed uh, to gender within the actual framework of what they signed on to is is a key issue, uh, especially considering those are going to be the major contributors to climate financing. Um, so that's within des- the design itself is going to be problematic a bit of a policy hurdle to get over um, however we're kind of in a unique position right now within the Canadian context considering the international assistance review process is currently concluding uh, so that's something that uh, the government Canada and global affairs Canada or GAC uh, is explicitly looking into and in how we can kind of streamline these processes how we can look more critically at gender and how we can incorporate it into some of our climate change uh, work abroad um, however as both of you mentioned there are still some serious gaps uh, and And a large part of this, especially within the agricultural sector, which you touched on, is the fact that um, women are deemed invisible farmers, largely. Uh, There's a huge amount of informality and a lack of acknowledgement of the work that they do as natural resources managers. Um, They have lack of access to technical extension services, training, et cetera. Uh, Literacy is usually a huge barrier as well. Um, And as a result, they're also more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, as you mentioned, uh, in the event of a disaster, for example. Couple that with a lack of women's voices at the table in policy and decision-making spheres, and you have a boiling pot of <laughs> well, of issues to tackle. Um, in in accompaniment with the lack of dis- sex, disaggregated, sex disaggregated data, which is something that is you know, people are starting to look at a little bit more, but it's definitely still a problem. Um, so those are kind of the major reasons as to why there are gaps. Um, and a large of this a, a large amount of this, as you mentioned, stems from some of the gendered inequalities that already exist within these countries, where women aren't necessarily deemed actors in trying to combat issues of climate change, uh, or seen as the most vulnerable, or or have that priority placed on their needs. Um, yeah. So as a result, this is we're definitely in a u- unique position to do something about it, but we have quite a bit of ground to cover.
0: And you mentioned just now. You- the, the the lack of of sex disaggregated data. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. And and frankly, is is this lack of uh, is this lack of disaggregated data? Would you say it, it's one of the causes behind these policy gaps?
2: Um, I would definitely. I think in the past it has been for sure uh, I think, and I think it continues to hinder efforts, definitely. Um, I think probably one of the primary causes are the, so, the root of the social inequalities that we, we kind of spoke to, but yeah, definitely having a lack of an understanding at a statistical level of why women are more vulnerable and what their contributions are, that's definitely a major issue. Uh, and these statistics are extremely important to kind of undergird why women are in this increasingly pre- precarious or vulnerable position. Um, A statistic that blew me away, I was in the World Social Forum uh, recently in Montreal. Uh, a couple days ago. And one of the statistics I heard that blew me away was that 20 out of 26 million of displaced people from uh, climate change globally are women. So that's pretty substantial. Um, Also, like in looking at in a post-disaster setting in Aceh, Indonesia, India and Sri Lanka, following the tsunami, uh, approximately 80 percent of the fatalities were women. So this definitely gives you a pretty accurate depiction of where women are at when it comes to these issues. Um, And it's funny because this is definitely something that we at at CCA, the Canadian Cooperative Association, try to work on in capacity building with our our partners is collecting sex disegregated sex disaggregated data, which to us may seem obvious as to why that's important, but delivering that message home and continuing to do this on an international sphere is going to be really essential um, to trying to close that gap. Great. You
1: mentioned the international assistance review that we're now having mm-hmm. with the Canadian government, and so that, definitely plays a role in trying to highlight the importance of gender when considering climate change. So with that, with that improved understanding that hopefully more people are gaining, how can policymakers move from this better understanding that climate change affects women and men differently to actually implementing policy that addresses this inequality? It's a big question. <laughs> it is a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah,
2: it's understanding and implementing are very, very different things, and I yes. think we've all seen that. You can generate a lot of beautiful policy documents, and they don't necessarily get taken up by anybody. So, um, I definitely, uh, in thinking about the IR IAR process, um, I've even just personally in contributing to that process, have seen some positive movements forward about how um, the work that's being done is potentially going to lead to some changes. Uh, For example, we're currently, the CCA is participating in an external review that GAC is commissioning of um, a climate fund that was looking specifically at African countries. And it's been a really engaging and participatory process. Uh, Programmers from, you know, ourselves to Care Canada, plan and others who had projects within this fund are all um, participating in the process. And almost we went to a presentation recently and almost every single um pro, uh, programmer who was involved, highlighted gender is a key concern. and gender, it's a climate change fund it has it's not necessarily gender specific. so that was really enlightening to see. Uh, and this is something that you could see the evaluators are really picking up on. Uh, and so that's been a really great participatory process in hoping that that work continues to go forward and then inform the work of GAC in the future and looking at these issues.
0: Absolutely, you know I've had I have, I've had a chance to hear, both uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of International Development speak on multiple occasions, and specifically the Minister of International Development. Every time she has a chance to talk about the IAR, she hammers home a priority for me, and, and thus a priority for this this IAR, women and girls, mm-hmm. women and girls, women and girls. She wants to find a way to, uh, for Canada's development programming, to focus as much on empowering women and girls around the world as possible. So I think that's... I, I i'm looking forward to to the conclusion of the consultations and and some action being put forward in in memorandums to the cabinet moving forward based on
2: this and another really interesting aspect of that is that she's made clear and there's been some talk around how to distinguish this uh, is that this our new approach to international assistance will be a feminist approach which is really really interesting and really really exciting because this is something that you know countries like denmark have already pioneered and they're already quite involved in and that means that if we take on um, a feminist approach to international assistance that also affects our trade sector, that affects multiple sectors, which will influence financing and which will influence how we can move this ball forward.
0: Absolutely. Um, for, the, for, for those people listening, and, and honestly, actually for me, I'll speak, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, for, for those of us who aren't completely aware, the, the mechanisms for policy creation, specifically regarding gender and climate change, what are, what are the mechanisms available moving forward
2: um well we touched on a few of them a a little bit already but definitely in order to have evidence-based policy decision-making um you should be ensuring that you're drawing from research that's contextually specific, first of all. Um, Climate change effects that are felt very differently in each country, even in each community, whether you're in an urban or a rural setting, for example. Um, Ideally using participatory approaches that encourage um, both women and men to bring their lived experiences to the table. Uh, So being able to draw from that type of research is really important. Um, Also, it's very, very important to highlight uh, an intersectional approach. So the concept of intersectionality is looking at vulnerability as it exists as a result of your race your class your gender your ethnicity etc so taking that into perspective allows us to see how maybe a group of indigenous women in the Peruvian Amazon are much more differentially impacted than you know an urban group in another setting so there are, there's definitely large bodies of research to draw from, considering we're in kind of a COP21 environment, post-COP21 environment at the moment. Uh, so the Working Group on Women's Empowerment and Client, uh, Climate Change Issues put out a very interesting proposal and paper. Uh, the UNDP also has some, obviously, some very well-reasoned and researched work, um, and they've been hammering that home for a while, so that's fantastic. Um, there's also some really uh, amazing climate justice advocacy-based organizations, um, WIDO is a really big one. So women environment and development organization uh, and also we so Women's Earth and Climate Networks. So I was able to see some representatives of we speak at the World Social Forum and they were really inspiring and they have a, a really good message to deliver on understanding the cross-section between gender and climate change. Uh, they also offer, these groups offer lots of uh, data and tools and policy recommendations to help kind of be able to implement. Um, and in the Canadian context as well, um, the Canadian Coalition on Climate Change and Development, or C4D, uh, CCA is a member of C4D. They have some fantastic policy recommendations as well, and they incorporate a gender focus.
1: Perfect. Well, in line with what Mitch asked, could you, and I know you touched a little bit on on tools for policy implementation, mm-hmm. can you enlighten us, enlighten us or talk a little bit more about the available channels for policy implementation?
2: Yeah, well, I guess considering... Um, that we have, you know, this language whether it's aspirational or not in the in the Paris Agreement. Currently, uh, the Canadian government, for example, could definitely leverage the messaging in there as well as the new, you know, new focus on the SDGs with those being an, a newer theme, mm-hmm. uh, and that highlighting both climate change and gender equality. Uh, it's a fantastic platform for for doing that. Um, there's definitely, as I kind of have touched on, there's flexibility and openness right now within Global Affairs Canada and within the Government of Canada and trying to articulate what the vision for attacking, you know, gender inequality and climate justice will look like. Uh, so in in that vein, we're able to kind of move around a little bit more uh, and potentially see gender as something that's um, both, uh, it's gender equality as its own standalone pillar as well as a cross-cutting theme will be really important, especially in integrating it within the environment programming. Um, And also not subsuming kind of environment within economic growth as currently it's climate change and sustainable, clean economic growth. Uh, So it'll be really important that we have we distinguish those and understand how they intersect with one another. Ooh, what else? Uh, Ooh, the Global Gender and Climate Alliance. They offer some really interesting uh, tool development and implementation planning uh, for government actors, private sector actors. Um, You know, using multilateral and bilateral programming channels will be really important as well to be able to do some work on the ground that addresses these issues. Um, And of course, some uh, gender-sensitive climate change financing mechanisms will be important as well.
0: All very interesting and very important stuff. But before we move along any further, let's take a quick break and we'll continue this discussion in a moment with our guest, Kale Caswell.
1: To do with climate change
2: oh the huge gender impacts of climate huge impacts uh, if you undermine poor livelihoods who has to pick up the pieces who has to put food on the table who has to go further in drought for firewood and um, the agents of the, those who are trying to adapt and be resilient that the vast majority of farmers in the development world are women so it, it is hugely important that the gender dimensions are recognized both the fact that women are more vulnerable because even in natural disasters, they're four times more likely to die than men, fourteen times, because they care about their children and try to hug them, they can't run very fast in long clothes, a whole variety of reasons.
1: You're listening to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com.
0: We're back with our guest, Kalei Caswell, and we're ready to dive back into our discussion. Um, as we were going to break, um, the last couple of questions that, that Mel and I had raised were focused a little bit on the practice, so, so the manner in which policy is, is created. Um, and I wanted to continue on that um, a little bit longer um, and take it to a, to a global level. So uh, in talking about what countries can do, um, should national governments depend on international forums like COP, like the the Conference of Parties, uh, for a strategic framework to address gender and climate change?
2: Um, I definitely think that um, it's it's a nice building block. It's a good place to start from and it's something that Canada is committed to and we should continue to build on for sure. I also think the commitments in, you know, following the Paris Agreement should be, should be the process as well, considering there's significant movement in, um, you know, moving the needle forward on some of these issues. Um, and as we've kind of covered a little bit um, in going through this international assistance review process, um, there's a hope in the Canadian context that that will continue to kind of hone what Canada's approach and kind of comparative advantage is in this regard. Um, this specifically in building synergies between departments, so in the past, um, with Environment Canada, now Environment and Climate Change Canada, uh, and GAC, you know, they, they function quite separately. Um, but there has been funding in the past that has been funneled from one to the other. So there's a hope that in going through this IAR process, we can build some synergies between the two, uh, especially with the Climate Action Plan under development at the moment. So that's it's an exciting uh, movement forward as well. Um, and I definitely think that um, from the Canadian perspective, for example, um, Canada should continue to kind of build relationships with other OECD countries that have um, ha- made significant progress on these issues. So um, government of Finland, for example, is is a really good example. They've included a gender perspective within uh, their climate measures since 2008. Um, and Denmark is another one that I, I believe I mentioned as well. Um, so yeah, working in tandem rather than in silos.
1: Okay, well, this definitely connects to my next question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've we've spoken a lot about the value of building partnerships, as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and and the strength in that. But but is it possible? Can a nation act unilaterally on this front, or does it have to? Does it require this international effort?
2: Um, I think if we think about the concept of climate change, is uh, from a macro perspective, being that. You know the the impacts of climate change will substantially erase any gains we've made on a pov- on poverty alleviation on a global scale, uh, and that impacts in one country will you know there's a domino effect in other ways. I definitely think it it takes an international front in that it's something that will affect everybody. Um, but I do think that being you c- as a as a nation you can set a standard and you can set um, you know the yardstick and by which others can then model their their um, their own policies after. Uh, So, yeah, and in using, as I mentioned, the government of Finland or Denmark or other, um, you know, other individuals who've been very um, progressive in this regard for some time, I think it's important to kind of look at the successes and challenges that some of these countries have made um, and kind of go from there.
1: And so you just spoke about setting a standard, and that's Mm -hmm. one of the possibilities. So can you speak to the importance of accountability measures so say cannabis that's a standard and, mm-hmm. and holding other countries countries accountable when when just say they're not meeting their their climate
2: change requirements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think in the, yeah, something that I've been hearing more and more about lately is how sticky that can get with some of our international trade agreements and how that can be significantly impact the kinds of relationships that we have with different countries based on that. Um, but yeah, I definitely think having and setting repercussions for other countries uh, that then, you know, makes it more of a, an agreement that or a plan that has more teeth to it rather than something that's just a, you know slap on the wrist, Uh, I definitely think that's important to whether it's imposing something a little bit more substantial than, yeah, you know, just a a general scolding. (laughs) Um, Yeah, ideally, Canada would move in that direction for sure. And
0: looking forward... um These challenges present, obviously, an opportunity to improve on the way that that policies are created and that programming is undertaken to try and combat climate change or adapt or mitigate some of the the negative impacts of climate Mm change. Um, And when I look at this topic, as we've said multiple times now, it is very substantive. (laughs) Uh, I think specifically when we look about the the relationship between gender and climate change, Mm -hmm. I, I see two issues, the first being that women are disproportionately affected by the impacts of, of climate change. and I think the other one is women aren't as involved in policy creation to address these challenges mm-hmm. as they could be. Um, so how can women have a greater voice mm-hmm. in policy creation? And also given the urgent need for effective climate change priorities, you know, time is of the essence. Uh, is there a way to to fast track more women, bring more women to the table?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh- That is a difficult question. (laughs) But I think in my experience anyways, um, women play important roles at multiple levels. And in in my experience in working with co-ops, working with a more community-minded or in community-engaged organization at more of a kind of a ground level provides kind of a good foundation to to gather these voices initially and to gather these experiential learnings. Um, So co-ops, for example, they kind of provide this bottom-up engagement process and decision-making and and policy, really. Uh, And for some women, it's Kind of their first foray into the political sphere, um, so I definitely think engaging on these topics and giving uh, women a platform to talk about the impacts of climate change on their lively on their livelihoods and of their families um, at more of a community community level is really important, and that you're then able to kind of leverage that information and bring those voices to a more national or international level from there. Um, I definitely think that policymakers should be ensuring that women have a seat at the table uh, and not just a tokenistic seat, but a a real seat and a real say um, during policy discussions. Uh, Women's experiences should be at the forefront of research on this subject for sure. uh, And they should definitely be explicitly targeted for for their participation in in policy creation. Um, So partnering with uh, local women's organizations at the community levels I mentioned, or also at the apex level or national women's networks is really important in order to Source out those individuals and understand uh, their experiences, their con- their contextual experiences, and also mentoring women to be able to participate in this process is really important in building those partnerships where women feel comfortable participating in these processes and don't feel that they're being, you know, the token woman at the table. Great. So, of course, as you just mentioned, it's important
1: to c- include women and empower them, as you said, at different levels mm-hmm. to participate and feel comfortable doing so, and the other important part of that of course is men they mm. are <laughs> they are also a force in this so <laughs> yeah. can you talk a little bit about how you think men can be best included in this conversation and and how can they most fully participate in meeting the challenges that we've kind of discussed today
2: yeah, well, I'm glad you you brought up that question because I definitely think there's a tendency within, you know, climate change-related policymaking that essentializes women's experiences where, you know, woman is Mother Earth and all of these other <laughs> concepts that are really essentializing and sometimes doesn't transcend. Gender, is not, gender does not equal women. Gender equals women and men. And that's why sometimes even, you know, the minister speaking about women and girls, yes, it's important, but that's not gender, right? So it's important that we understand this as, as a multifaceted issue. Um, but yeah, including men, voices is interesting because they've really dominated the discourse of (laughs) climate change to date, uh, especially when you guys spoke at the beginning about it being largely scientific. Uh, For a very long time, uh, lived experiences of women and women's survival strategies really have kind of been off the table. Um, So that is a very good question. Um, I think at a a programmatic level, if you're working on a climate change related uh, project, it's definitely important that you have kind of a masculinities approach or a men's engagement strategy to understanding these issues but I think that I many people would probably be surprised to find that you know men at you know on the ground level already understand women's vital role in either adapting to climate change and ensuring the survival of their families um, however maybe men at the policy level maybe there's a little bit of a disconnect so maybe there's some cross-cultural learning experiences that could happen there uh, but definitely ensuring that men are engaged in this conversation and highlighting uh, the gap where women are women's voices are are lacking is important uh, in order to kind kind of bring them both to the table um, with a kind of a common understanding.
0: I think balance is important, as in with many other things. And uh, in the preparation for today, I was doing some background reading on on COP21, obviously, in the Paris Agreement, and I saw a photo of all the negotiators at COP21 together. Mm. And it was interesting, just a sea of men, practically Mm -hmm. speaking, with, with a few women Dotted in there. Now, of course, that, I, that's a symptom of a much larger issue. Um, but I still thought it was it was interesting, particularly when, when talking about gender and climate change. And it's very, at least at the very top right now, it's very very male heavy. Um,
2: And definitely in thinking about, yeah, representation is really important in these discussions, right? And something really quite upsetting that I heard too was that the actual delegations of, um, you know, agricultural producers that were present at COP21 was was pretty minimal. Um, Maybe there were some some present in a more kind of informal context, but actually involved in the discussions, not so much. Uh, And especially given, yeah, the the need to understand this within the agricultural sector and the impetus to ensure that there's sustainability regarding climate change there. Um yeah, so that's that's unfortunate mm. on two counts. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing
1: all your insights. They were they're very helpful and kind of I think Mitch and I have gained a, a much oh, absolutely. better understanding oh, yeah. of this this very broad, broad topic that we've decided to cover this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I did enjoy a lot of the things you said, especially about the importance of not just having this token representation Mm -hmm. because I think that is the case a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and and there's this kind of gap in understanding of of just because there is someone physically there the the um, the participation and the the input that's needed is not necessarily at the table
0: absolutely and I think uh, as I mentioned before every challenge presents new opportunities and I think more and more, I think, I think Comp Twenty One has been a has been a good step. Given that if mm-hmm. we all look all the way back to the UNF Triple C originally, when that when that was negotiated, there was no mention of mm-hmm. gender. There was no mention of any of that. It's completely it's completely absent from that. Um, so it's nice to see. Maybe sometimes these things take a little longer than necessary, and mm-hmm. it's a long road ahead. But um, at least these conversations are happening. Yep. At least at least <laughs> some progress is being made. So I think that's something to be hopeful for. Hmm.
1: Um, well. I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening, and a big thanks to Kalei for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was great.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Stay tuned for another episode next week, and remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. Uh, And on that note, uh, from the entire team, uh, those of you listening, We'd love to hear your feedback. If you have ideas for future episodes, if you have suggestions of, of, of how what directions we could take this podcast in uh, to make it more exciting, um, we're very receptive. Um, please email us, tweet at us, um, include us in the conversation.
1: Yes, Mitch loves to read emails, so please send them all to him, and he will he will analyze them accordingly.
0: I'll just add them to add them to the to do list.
1: Exactly. <laughs> This, po- this episode was made possible by our dedicated research team, Mark Haiken, Devin Willenius, Samantha Nickel, Sheda Ali, Jackie Rezga, and our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mel.
0: And I'm Mitch. This is Policy Talks. Big topic. Big, big. topic. But you know so what? I think, it's, I think it's so...